Matthew chapter 13, and then page 54 in the back of the blue for our catechism questions and answers tonight. Matthew 13, beginning in verse 44. Forty-four through fifty-two. Let us hear the words of our Lord as he gives these parables on the kingdom of heaven. Matthew uses the term kingdom of heaven. Luke uses the term kingdom of God, same kingdom. Let us hear from the gospel of Matthew. Chapter 13, verse 44, God's holy and inspired word. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? Jesus asked. Yes, they replied. He said to them, Therefore, every teacher of the law who has been instructed about the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. Then page 54 in the back of the blue hymnal, Lord's Day 42, as we consider the eighth commandment in God's law, thou shalt not steal. Let us respond together by reading these answers, beginning in question 110. What does God forbid in the Eighth Commandment? He forbids not only outright theft and robbery, punishable by law, but in God's sight, theft also includes cheating and swindling our neighbor by schemes made to appear legitimate, such as inaccurate measurements of weight, size, or volume, fraudulent merchandising, counterfeit money, excessive interest, or any other means forbidden by God. In addition, he forbids all greed and pointless squandering of his gifts. What does God require of you in this commandment? that I do whatever I can for my neighbor's good, that I treat him as I would like others to treat me, and that I work faithfully so that I may share with those in need. Interesting that we were reading Proverbs chapter 16, and it mentioned the cheating of the scales. And we see how certainly in that time, 
end. Uh, in centuries past, perhaps when our catechism was written, that these were things that uh, tended to sneak into the marketplace, perhaps more often than they do today, but it doesn't mean that we live in a time where greed or cheating or swindling are any less prevalent. But in Jesus' time, he talks about money and greed and power a lot because then, just as now, they gripped people. Thus, Jesus was very right to address all of these things very often. Even though at the time of Jesus' ministry, there was less of an opportunity to ascend the economic ladder, as it were. The world of Jesus' day was one that was enjoying, however, the fruits of, uh, the economic fruits of a vast Roman empire that allowed development of trade routes and uh, huge exchange of goods, the likes of which had never been seen before in the world. But it was mainly the rich and powerful who benefited from this economic growth. The rich got richer. But this meant, however, that the display of power and the lure of money was often broadcast for people to see, to desire, sinfully, even most Israelites. With even, uh, within Israel itself, the high priests were less like monks who had taken vows of poverty and more like Wall Street tycoons managing hedge funds. Their temple taxes allowed them to use the established institution of religion, the word of God and the laws of Moses, to extort and abuse the common man. It is this situation into which Jesus enters in his day. We think especially of the time when Jesus clears out the temple. He drives out and turns over the tables of the money changers. Money changers, of course, were not themselves Priests, but had presumably set up shop in the temple through the permission of the priests. And it's likely that uh, the, the priests, the high priests, were capitalizing uh, and benefiting from this as well. Jesus told the money changers that their greed had turned the house of God into a den of robbers, using God's name to steal money, to extort people. What a horrible tragedy this is. When we think about it, an exact reversal of one of the main lessons from these parables about the kingdom. People came to the temple in order to learn about God, in order to be told how it is that they might be set right with this God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. But it had become a place where earthly blessings had replaced and superseded heavenly ones. This is especially tragic because it fails to recognize what is possibly the most important truth that one can know in this life. The most important truth that one can know on this earth that the kingdom of God and the blessings it offers are infinitely more valuable than the treasures of this earth. Infinitely more valuable. This is the mindset that creates and sustains a Christian a Christ-centered, a gospel-saturated, a spirit-empowered approach towards earthly possessions that allows not only obedience to and conformity to the Eighth Commandment, but also an understanding how Jesus deepens this commandment for us and transforms it, once again, as he gives it to us. He clarifies its meaning, deepens and broadens it, and then transforms it as he gives it to us. 
First then, let's consider a few things from God's word, things like uh, the Bible's teaching on land and property. The Eighth Commandment itself obviously shows us the importance of civil life in Israel under God's careful watch. Property was important. There are several other nuances of laws about property and against stealing in the Old Testament. It's not just the Eighth Commandment. God goes into detail several things about the way the Israelites were to act towards private possessions. And all of these laws show us that God wanted his people to respect the belongings of others. To deny the idea of belongings and property is to to deny what God has woven into the fabric of creation. It's part of the world that he has made. If a cow was stolen in Israel, the thief would have to pay back five times the value of that cow to its owner. If it was returned, there would still be an extra payment for restitution. You would have to give back the cow and then pay its value plus another tax. Physical things, material things, possessions matter to God and peaceful nations flourish off of a similar respect. Respect of possessions, private property. If you abandon all of these categories, civil order is lost. Land was also regulated strictly in Israel. It's important to understand that in the strictest sense, land belonged to God. But God had given the land of Canaan as an inheritance to his people. And he allowed them to manage it and in a sense be temporary owners of it. He gave it to the tribes of Israel and the tribes in turn divided it amongst their families. And some people have the impression that as you go from Old Testament to New, all of this gets turned on its head. In the Old Testament, sure, God respects land and property, possessions, all of those things. But in the New Testament, don't we read that the early church had all things in common? Didn't they live something like a communist group where there were no personal possessions? But what we see in Scripture is really something else entirely. Certainly in the book of Acts, there was a common outpouring of generosity and sometimes even radical generosity, abundant giving, But that abundant giving in the book of Acts remains a private matter. We see that families come and and give. They would sell off extra properties that they had, assets that they had. They would bring them and lay them at at the feet of the apostles. They felt compelled to sell some of their possessions, to give from their inheritance. But it was still a private decision that these families arrived at guided along by the Holy Spirit. Thus, the message of Scripture, all of Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, regarding these things is this. While God is the Lord and owner of all things, He allows human beings a temporary ownership that is to be respected by others. That's the way that God has set up His his world. It's not only made explicit in God's Word, it's also part of natural law. All image bearers of God have this law written on their hearts. We know within ourselves, within our persons, that it's wrong to take something that belongs to everyone else. From our earliest years, it kind of works in the reverse order, right? First, we understand that things belong to us. Sophia, I think I shared this with you 
while back, but Sophia now just goes around the house and she'll say things like, my office, when she goes into my office, my kitchen, right? We understand that things belong to us, but all image bearers of God, we understand as this law is written on our hearts that there is this sense that we have in whatever way that we understand as it relates to God, possessions, stealing, cheating, swindling, counterfeiting, extorting, These are all things that are against the law in just about every humane corner of the earth. We see the commonality of laws as we go from nation to nation. Thus we see that really every breaking of the Eighth Commandment is an attempt to get ahead. To amass wealth or possessions on this earth by way of a shortcut. Being dissatisfied with what the hand of God has given to you, whether you believe in a sovereign God or not. We understand how and why this commandment is broken, but how does Jesus deepen its meaning in his word? And how does he transform it, as, uh, transform our hearts in order to obey it? Jesus does it in these parables by teaching us the superior value of the kingdom of God. Superior value of the kingdom of God. He does it by taking the twisted desires that we have for wealth on this earth, and showing that it is really just a warped way of understanding the God-shaped hole in our hearts. The crying out that so many people experience, the the desire for uh, huge mountains of riches. It's a warped and a twisted way of thinking about the God-shaped hole in our hearts. There's something that is missing, naturally. And what we need is to be set right with God. But oftentimes, that emptiness gets expressed by way of greed. Thus, he teaches the value of the kingdom of heaven, as it's called in Matthew, by appealing to earthly things of great value. In these parables, he uses earthly things of great value to show the value of the heavenly, the value of the eternal kingdom. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden, is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. We have all heard stories about hidden treasure. Many of us spent parts of our childhood pretending to look for it in the backyard or in the woods somewhere. But this was more than just mere fantasy in the time of Jesus. This is something that actually happened. Because of the sometimes corruption, the lack of trustworthiness in bankers, and because people did not have safes and there weren't finely tuned systems of security, sometimes if people had something very valuable, a treasure, a possession, something that they wanted to keep hidden, they would literally hide it, sometimes bury it, put it in the ground. Their most valuable and precious things they would put where they thought no one would find them. Kids, people who were once kids, that should be all of us, we can all relate to this, right? Even you see this sometimes in animals. Dogs have something they really like. What do they do? They bury it, right? And just because we figured out better ways to take care of our stuff doesn't mean we can't relate to this instinct. This instinct of wanting to protect the things that you have. But there's all kinds of extra risk that this carried at that time in the world. What if you forgot where you buried the treasure? This was something that certainly happened from time to time. People forgot exactly where it was. What if uh, someone died and no one else knew where it was? No one else knew where to find it? 
So it was not necessarily very common, but it was not unheard of in the Greco-Roman world that people would find hidden, buried treasure. This is how Jesus uses this story. And in this parable, the man finds buried treasure, but it is on land that he does not own. Thus he hides it where he found it, goes to sell all that he has in order that he might buy the field. Jesus uses this scenario, this parable, to teach us about the superior value of the kingdom of God. This is what he's trying to instill in us. We may read this and question the moral goodness of what the man is doing. Isn't it a little bit dishonest that he is going and trying to buy the field, not telling anyone that there is buried treasure on it? But Jesus is not addressing that part of the parable. He's using this story to show us that this man's willingness to go to all of this trouble, to sell everything that he has, indicates how important the kingdom of heaven is. It's worth giving up everything else. It's worth setting aside everything else or exchanging everything you have for it. The second parable is connected to the first. Jesus begins by using the word again, which shows he's going along the same train of thought. The situation in the second parable about the pearls is uh, different, but shows a similar willingness to give up someone's current possessions for something that they discover. A merchant on the hunt for fine pearls. At that time, pearls were much more valuable than they are now. Back then, they were probably closer to the way that we think of diamonds. They were more precious than gold. And once this merchant comes across the kind of pearl he has been seeking, what does he do? He likewise goes and sells all that he has for a tiny little jewel so that he might go and buy it. And he does so joyfully. What's the lesson from these two, these first two parables of Jesus? In both of these situations, the determination The reckless abandon of the two men to acquire what they have been seeking. This teaches us about the kingdom of heaven. They are entirely willing to give up everything that they have in order that they might gain that one thing that they desire. A good parallel for us today, perhaps, would be someone who is utterly convinced of a certain stock in the stock market. The value of that. They would see that it's going to rise exponentially in value or a certain piece of property in a certain area that will rise in value after new houses go up around it. In these parables, Jesus is impressing upon us the value of the kingdom of heaven. It is unsurpassed. It is unmatched. It is a priceless treasure. The reckless abandon of these two men, what does it symbolize? It symbolizes for us saving faith. Saving faith. For in the kingdom of heaven, those who believe in Jesus look to him and rest in him alone for salvation. The man who finds the treasure in the field, he does everything he can so that he might attain that treasure. The merchant of the fine pearls sells everything he has so that he might gain that one pearl. This is like saving faith. We do not look to Christ and a bunch of other things. We do not trust in Jesus and then trust in all a bunch, uh, a bunch of other stuff as well. It's risky in a sense, isn't it? Because we're placing all of our hope, all of our eggs in that one basket. The one basket of Jesus Christ. 
total resting in Christ alone. And this means that the Christian life is a total devotion to the Lord in our lives as well. The center of all our attention, the, the center of all of our pursuits. Total devotion. We see this in the parable, don't we? These men are totally devoted to that which they are seeking. And for those with saving faith, the kingdom of heaven is one of total devotion as well. To others who might not know about the buried treasure, who might not know about the value of pearls, this type of action looks extreme. Going overboard in today's world, investing all of your assets in a single stock based on a hunch would be considered foolish as well. Just like these parables would have come across as these men acting foolish. But that is what it means to have faith in Christ, to abandon all other objects of security, all other objects of trust, and to rest body and soul in life and in death in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. Thus tonight, brothers and sisters, may we never forget the value of the kingdom of heaven. It is a treasure beyond description. It is too wonderful to comprehend. It has no equal in this life or the next. Furthermore, this kingdom has been made available to us not through a quick decision by God. No, it has been formed in the eternal plan of God since before the ages. It cost the Father his own son. It was purchased for us with the precious blood of Christ. The kingdom is valuable to the Father as well. When we consider all of this together, it moves us to true joy. In the first parable, notice what the man does. He does not sell all that he has begrudgingly or with regret. He joyfully goes and gives up everything else so that he might attain that one thing that is most valuable to him. Thus may we give ourselves in total devotion to Jesus Christ. May we rest in him alone. May we do so joyfully as the value of everything else fades away. Jesus ties a third parable into his lesson as well. This third one also begins with the word again. This string of three straight parables of Jesus' teaching. While this parable teaches a similar lesson, it arrives there from a different perspective. The parable of the net. Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven to a net that is thrown down into a lake. A dragnet that would be suspended behind a boat or to the side of it. And it would catch all of the fish in its path. Once the net catches many fish, it's brought upon shore. The fishermen will have to sort through all of the net, uh, all that the net has caught. Some fish will be good, some fish will be bad. The casting of the net here is the work of the church. Jesus is likening it to the proclamation of the gospel. He says, the kingdom of God is like a net. Thus we're talking about people who are in the kingdom of God. Jesus is pointing out to us that the the company of the church is now, before the consummation, a mixed company. The preaching of the gospel brings in true believers and also false professors. Those who are truly saved and those who have a mere outward profession. And at the end of the age, Jesus says that his angels will come. They will separate the evil from the righteous and each will go to their eternal dwelling place. The evil will go to a place of eternal torment, the righteous to a place of blessedness. So how is this parable 
connected to the first two. This parable also shows us the value of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, uh, is as it reminds us of the judgment from which Christ saves us. The fish who are evil are judged according to what they deserve. But those who have been made truly a part of the kingdom of heaven are saved from the eternal judgment of God. This is what the kingdom of heaven does. It saves us from judgment. And the judgment that is so deserved makes this life pale in comparison to both the blessedness and the judgment of the age to come. Thus we see why both the treasure hunter and the merchant of pearls give up everything in order to attain this kingdom, to gain the treasures that they find because there is no blessedness that can compare with truly being made a part of the kingdom of heaven. It's understanding the need for being rescued. You know, the, the thought of being rescued maybe would not hit home until you actually need it. But when you realize that you are in need of a rescue, a savior seems a lot better. A savior is a lot more valued at that point. It's from this mindset, this worldview, that we see how Jesus transforms the Eighth Commandment and by the Spirit also transforms our hearts and our ability to keep it. It changes the way that we think about earthly possessions. Is this life primarily about us or about what God is doing in us to prepare us for eternity? Clearly, it is the latter. And then what is it that we learn from what our Savior has done in bringing this kingdom to us? He did not hoard the blessedness that he had with the Father. That's not what Jesus did. He shared his blessedness with us. He put our needs first. He gave and he did not take. Though he was rich, he became poor so that those who were poor might become rich. This does not mean that God calls all of his people to poverty. But rather, he calls us to have a mindset that is like this, shaped and formed by the teachings of Jesus, being gracious, helpful, servant-hearted, and all of this comes about from having a truly heavenly perspective on life, understanding the value of the kingdom of heaven. We do what we can, as the Catechism says, for our neighbor's good. We work faithfully not just for our own enjoyment of this life, but so that we might share with those who have need. Even in the New Testament, the book of James reminds us that all good things we have come down from our heavenly Father. They're not ours, ultimately. It's all God's. We enter this world with nothing. We leave this world with nothing but Christ. But in the kingdom of heaven, we enter having already been given everything by our Savior. And the storehouse of blessings of the kingdom of heaven will never run out it will never be less than that first day. It will remain full for, our, for all eternity. If we put ourselves in the shoes of the treasure hunter or the shoes of the merchant of uh, the fine pearls, what is it that we must do in order to gain this kingdom? Like we saw this morning in Luke, we must only believe. And even our belief is a gift of God. So in all things we see that God is the one who pours his blessings out upon us. The author of this kingdom, the creator of this kingdom, who wants to share his blessings 
with his people, who gives faith as a gift, who welcomes us. The temptation to cut corners, to get ahead in this world, or to be consumed by greed is a massive miscalculation of the value of this life in comparison with the next. In this world, the only true and priceless treasure that you can experience is Jesus and his kingdom, not gold, silver, diamonds, or pearls. Only Jesus. In order to see that treasure, we can't depend on our own ability to see it, but on God's spirit forming in our hearts true faith, true love of the Savior, giving us eyes to see the invisible kingdom which we will enjoy for all eternity. That's why at the end of this passage, Jesus asks if his disciples have understood all of these things. They respond by saying yes, and then Jesus says that the teachers of the law who understand these things are like the owners of a house who bring out of their storeroom treasures that are old and new. Jesus is saying that understanding uh, the kingdom, knowing what the kingdom is, knowing what the kingdom of God is about, is the central most important fact of the Bible. It spans from beginning to end. From Genesis to Revelation is a story about the kingdom of God, the reign of God, the new creation of God. At the end of this passage, Jesus highlights for us a few different things as he exhorts those who are instructed for the kingdom. The first is the importance of education and learning and knowledge in the kingdom of God. That's why we do what we do. Gathering around the word, hearing its teaching. We must know what the kingdom of God is. New creation, the reign of God in Jesus Christ and how the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior relate to it. That's why you find in the Gospels, all throughout the Gospels, Jesus teaching about the kingdom. He has come to teach us, to show us, to make us part of the kingdom. Jesus also highlights the importance of teachers who are trained in order to show the meaning of the scriptures as they relate to the kingdom of God. It's vital for the church that there are teachers who can devote the bulk of their time to studying, teaching, expounding, preaching, The scriptures, the Old and New Testaments, both contain these truths for our good. God's people must spend time in the Old and the New Testaments, showing what God has been doing from beginning to end. Finally, it's not only the teachers, but all of God's people, all of us who, when taught about the secrets of the kingdom, when taught about the value of the kingdom, hold within them a treasure that is worth reflecting upon. We all ought to take time each and every week reflecting upon the value of this kingdom, talking about it, sharing it with others. Just as people around us have material needs, so they also have spiritual needs. God does not call all of us to be evangelists or street preachers, but we can all learn to speak a word of grace with a loving heart at just the right moment. That's one of the things that the Spirit can do for us. How can we speak about the kingdom of God? How can we speak about its truth? How can we have a word of grace with a tender and loving and caring heart at just the right moment? As we learn the truths of God's kingdom, this is what the Lord forms in our hearts by the Holy Spirit through faith. As we sit under the teaching of God's word, the Spirit is forming in us 
a true knowledge of the kingdom, a true knowledge of the priceless treasure that we have in Jesus Christ that transforms the way that we think about earthly and heavenly treasures, transforms the way that we think about this life, transforms our hearts so that we might keep a commandment as simple as this, thou shalt not steal. The more we do this, the more the alluring pleasures of this world will fade away. The less prone to greed and frivolity we will be, the more we will see the supreme value of knowing Jesus. So much so that everything else will be considered as nothing in comparison with Christ, our true and lasting treasure. Let's pray. Father, impress these scriptures upon our hearts. Thank you for them. Thank you for your word. May we hold on to it always. May we look to our true, priceless, lasting treasure, Jesus Christ, in whom we have redemption, in whom we have life, in whom we have immeasurable blessings. pray all these things in his name. Amen. We'll sing... Verses 1, 4, and 5 of number 642. Be thou my vision, riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Jesus Christ is our inheritance now and forever. 642, be thou my vision, 1, 4, and 5. Let's stand together and sing.